Welcome to Dealmaker Diaries, where you hear directly from the dealmakers who you invest with. M&A, real estate syndication, and more. Strap in for unparalleled advice, wisdom, and insight from some of the world's best business minds with Don Thomas and G1C Group. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Dealmaker Diaries. Today we have with us entrepreneur, author, and M&A expert, Kisan Patel. Kisan Patel is the founder and CEO of M&A Science with a passion to drive the M&A industry forward. He was an M&A advisor for 10 years in which he sold larger companies such as commercial banks and hotel chains. In 2012, he noticed teams lacked efficient technology to manage deals and created DealRoom, an M&A lifecycle management platform. In 2016, he started the M&A Science podcast devoting his time to creating a platform where all the best practitioners could share their best practices and lessons learned from real-life deals. Kisan then created the M&A Science Academy in 2020 to offer step-by-step training to those looking to master M&A featuring courses created by top-level practitioners. Through developing technology, educational content, and industry training, Kisan aims to bring better practices to an industry with growing market pressures transaction values, and competition. So let's give Kisan a warm welcome to the show. Let's go. Hey, Kisan, how are you today? I am doing great, Donald. Thanks for uh, taking the time to chat with me. Oh, absolutely. Welcome to the show. Yeah, excited to have you on today. So have you had a great week so far? So far, it's nothing to complain about. Got uh, some time in California. Just got back to home, Chicago. Okay, yeah, Chicago. Yeah, I lived there five years. Great, great city. It is. It's, uh, definitely a good city to raise a family. I don't know if I'd live here if I was single. <laughs> All right, yeah, so... Kisan, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, what you're doing in the M&A space and um, how you're helping other individuals in that space as well. Yeah, uh, you know, today in the M&A space, we have a business that what started off as a, a simple software product for managing M&A and very much focused on the diligence process. And that's really evolved where we operate several different business lines that all theme around education and technology. So I, I look at it as we're always evolving and developing our capabilities to solve problems in M&A. Okay. And um, how, how do you think the M&A space is changing um, today? I, the big shift is the, this uh, focus on a finance approach is shifting to a focus on a people-focused approach. And what that means is that early days, we put a big emphasis on the financial model, have a lot of uh, assumptions around synergies and what that's gonna play out and the value we're gonna capture on the deal. When we go through our process, companies don't make those numbers. They have a big fail rate because of that. Uh, And a lot of times the process itself is so taxing on that company you're acquiring you end up losing a lot of people. They get pissed off and they leave and along with it, a lot of value. So 
companies or organizations are really wising up to this. And we've seen in the past few years, this huge emphasis on creating a people-focused process, which means from the beginning, you think about the end. Like, where, where are you exactly going? What is this picture going to look like in terms of an end state after the deal's done? And really crystallize that, understand what that go-to-market's going to look like, uh, getting that CEO of the target company involved to understand what that's going to look like as well, because you want him to be part of that journey to help lead and guide this organization you're acquiring uh, to get to that end state all in one piece. And also that process itself should include the values of the organizations and having these respected CEOs align around that uh, to the level there's a true understanding around those values, not just on a you know one pager, but they have had conversations that really expanded out how these values attribute to the way of working in their respected organizations so that they can understand the cultural differences and identify the commonalities and the differences and where there are opportunities align and potential conflicts that may come up. Um, and then going through that process as well is being iterative that as you learn about the company through the diligence process, you're continuously updating your plans and how you're going to integrate that company so that when you do finally close on that transaction, things are well thought out. You have a good understanding, you know, the systems are using, you know, how you're going to integrate them, you know, the key people involved, you know how you're going to retain those key people. Um, I, I I think also one other element I'll add is this idea of a reverse diligence is starting to trend where as you go through this process and you're able to disclose more information, uh, you can actually give a view to that company you're acquiring on what the parent organization or the acquirer uh, is going looks like how they're structured where does this company that's going to get acquired fit or will fit into that parent organization and what that journey to get there is going to look like um you know the, these elements that are happening early earlier in the process than that traditional finance approach is what's really shifting things and getting much better alignment with the company that's getting acquired so that when they do actually go through those activities of integrating, which are taxing, I mean, it's the largest magnitude of change management or organization could possibly go through that they're, they're motivated, they're, they're engaged, uh, and also more importantly aligned on the top priorities that need to happen to make that transition successful. Okay. And, um, just to drill down a bit more on being people focused. So what advice would you give a CEO that um, I might be bringing into a company that um, I'm acquiring through an acquisition? What, what, what advice should I be giving to that CEO to be more people oriented? To the CEO of the acquirer or the acquiree? Acquiree. Yeah, for the CEO of the acquiree, I think that's a, a big choice for them to make because a lot of times they're working with an investment bank and they may be going through an auction process where they have to choose between multiple buyers. And sometimes you're 
best buyer may not be offering the highest price. So there's some consideration if they're in that scenario and they're in a competitive process or if they're in a proprietary process and you may have got a firm that reached out and it, things seem right, uh, that could be another situation. But the key is to really spend the time to understand how, how well things are thought out, right? Like does that organization have a clear strategy on what they're planning to do with your organization? Does it align with your goals and vision, how you'd like to see your company evolve, uh, how you'd like to see the, the impact on your people and what that's going to mean to them? Are you generating opportunities for them to grow or are you going to be reducing opportunities and there's going to be significant layoffs? Uh, so the, the understanding that strategy from the buy side, I, I think it does a lot of good things. It, it helps you identify if it's a good decision or not. Um, it, it also can help solidify what's the seriousness of their interest and how well thought out it is. Um, I, I, I think too, it'll also lend to what that relationship's going to look like. If there's that transparency there and are you in a path to develop a good partnership or is it not there? And, and it gives you a view and what, what that working relationship is going to look like. Um, so I, I think really digging in and just understanding what the strategy is, what, what does that end state look like? What, what are their goals? How do they plan on transitioning there? What does their integration process look like? I, I think asking those tough questions and seeing how well they can answer them is, is going to be a, a critical factor in yourself to determine if it makes sense to do the transaction or not. All right. Excellent. Excellent. And um, what are, what do you think some common mistakes are that are made frequently in M&A? There's a lot. How much time do we have? <laughs> as much as you're going to give us. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, boy. Where, where do we begin? The common mistakes made. So let's take a scenario. If we are a company that's selling, I, I would say one is one is preparation that to sell a business, you got to keep the house clean spotless because you're going to have people over to look at the place. Hmm. Um, and with that, most companies in some way, shape or form have a lot of work to do, whether it's just purely the financial part operations. Uh, there might be things in the security side, you know, are we getting certain certifications around that that are still in the works? Uh, I, I think that's that's an important part because if you don't have those things in order, uh, it raises concerns, potential red flags. It'll incur more clarification questions when you go through that diligence process. And especially, particularly if you're going to run an auction process and have multiple suitors re review the business. Uh, so it's, it's, I think first and foremost, most important is housekeeping, really clean the house up, make sure books and, and there's resources you can work with. If you can find uh, a CFO or, or someone in an executive level that's been involved in a similar transaction on the sell side, and they have an understanding of what it takes to prep that business for sale, um, that, that could be an avenue. There's obviously a whole, um, a bunch of options for advisors that you could retain 
whether it's uh, just on a consulting engagement or, or on a contingency, if you hire an investment bank to, to carry out the tasks assigned the business, they'll help with some of that preparation as well. Um, that's, that's an important part. I think the other thing is a lot of times the management team in general with the selling entity that may have not be familiar with that process don't aren't prepared for how taxing it is because when you do go through this process and you're courting various buyers, you're going to have to spend a lot of time uh, preparing the information that's needed to go through this process, but also time with management presentations. A lot of times potential acquirers are going to want to get a good understanding of the management team, the capabilities, if they're going to be part of the go forward plan and, and how, uh, so they, they set up these management presentations for you to interview with these potential buyers. Um, and that's a process of its own. And then when you get to that point where you negotiate and actually sign a letter of intent, then from there you move into this confirmatory diligence period, which is when it, things really start getting more, more uh, intense you know, the acquiring organization is going to have a lot more people involved both internally and potentially externally. And they're going to be doing a much deeper dive and diligence, um, for all different components. They'll have various functional leaders. So if you can think of a, if your larger companies acquiring a smaller, they're going to have their head of sales, head of marketing, the it legal HR, all the functional leaders are going to be in there doing diligence reviewing, making sure what's represented is, is accurate, the business is worth what they're paying for, look for any risks, red flags, uh, and plan for integration at that time to understand how are they gonna integrate this uh, function or organization into their own. Um, and that's, that's a lot of requests for information that's gonna be needed, a lot of clarification questions that are gonna be continuously going back and forth and more often than not, management teams are not prepared for that. It's taxing, it's distracting. It's very distracting where it can distract you from your business goals and could impact your business performance. Um, so that that's one of the things to be mindful of is how, how are you gonna manage it and how are you gonna allocate resources to manage the process itself. Um, so yeah, those, those are areas. Uh, I, I think some of the other things I think just the, the the level of diligence getting acquired that you do back to the buyer is as important. That you should be able to have a sense what the next steps are well ahead of time, and, and have that communicated to you. Um, you know that that's really really important to to get a sense. You know when you even think about some of these challenges that tend to happen post close when you're integrating businesses. Uh, just to start planning as early as possible to be able to avoid any big issues that could potentially come up later. Uh, and I, I think also to make the process as swift and as efficient as possible. Um, I, I, I think on the selling side too is sort of being mindful of what the buyer is going to need to make the deal successful. You know, at the end of the day, it's got to be a mutual partnership that we're going to work together to make this deal successful. So for the buyer obviously comes in with a level of control in terms of they're putting up the significant amount of capital to make this deal happen. But on the sell side, I, I, I think there's that level where 
you got to put that effort to help that buyer uh, in ways that would help them in the overall success of the deal. So a big example of this is it's important for a buyer to understand who the key people are in the organization um, and, and align them with that go forward plan. Because if those key people are going to be critical for the growth of the business, they want to be able to retain them. So for them to one, identify who the key people are. And sometimes they're not so obvious. We look at the C-suite, but you know, they could have been this legacy programmer that wrote all the original code and he's one of the key people, but wasn't very obvious to, to define. And almost every function has some key folks like that. Mm-hmm. So really spending the time to identify who those key people are. And then second is identifying their flight risk. You know, some of them may not be happy with this idea of the transaction or they love the startup culture and they don't want to be part of a big company. That's not what they signed up for. So understanding where your flight risks are going to be. And then from there, uh, developing your, your retention strategy uh, and how you're going to retain those key people. Um, so the, yeah, those are some of the, just an example of even on the sell side, you, you should sort of be looking for things that the buyer is going to need to make the deal successful and try to get those conversations out earlier than later. Okay. Excellent. And what, what are some, um, you, you probably touched on this a little bit already, but what are, what are some of the things sellers should be doing to maximize business value before a transaction? So things, housekeeping is a big one. You know, there's common things if you work with an investment bank that they're going to walk you through where they will probably suggest like a sell side Q of E, which is a quality of earnings report. And that's where you have a third party come in and do a deep dive on your numbers. And it, it gives you a good perspective on how the buyers would look at it to look at your quality of your financials. And they look for these early red flags, like here's expenses that shouldn't be reported on the company or some profits from the previous year that were reported on the current year, and th- these type of things that um, re- really could lend to some corrections in the way you look at the business. So the, the, that's a big thing that's very common these days is the sellers doing some additional preparation with even third parties um, that typically the buyers would do. You know, you'll still do this Q of E report and spend some money for it, but then the buyer in turn is going to go ahead and still do their own. Um, and then maybe market studies. You know, if your business is in a particular space, you, you may have a third party do some market studies as well. Um, so those are those are some additional things. Again, getting the business just pre- organized, prepared, and also marketable when you do have some of these third party reports. Um, I, I think the other contingent part in, in terms of the preparation is whether you're going through a formal auction process or if you're going directly to potential buyers. Because if you're going through an auction process, you typically retain an investment bank to help manage that process for you. Um, if you do go through that process, you will identify a number of banks, five, six, and this is what they call a bake-off. You'd have these various bankers present and they give a presentation. They talk, sort of talk about your company, where it sits in, in your industry's marketplace. And they go through all this and come up with uh, an estimated value, um, which is 
tends to be the thing that people focus on. Uh, and, and this is one where it gets interesting that you don't necessarily want to hire the, hire the person that's putting the highest one out there. Uh, you know, cause it's, it's sort of the, the this kind of, it, it's an assumption, right? It, you're assuming that you can get something based on what you know, but uh, we all know about assumptions, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you, you take that for a grain of salt, you, you know, and it's, it's almost a lot of cases it, you're better off with whoever's in between, right? Not the highest, not the lowest. Uh, but then back it up, understand their transaction history, how well they're connected in the industry, how, what potential buyers that they have relationships with to really ask them questions, understand if you're going to sell my company, I, I want to know your, your likeliness of it, but I want to know your capability that, Hey, are you, you somebody brand new to this and you're a general shop that doesn't have a specialty in the industry and you're just going to create a teaser and just spam a bunch of people. Cause I can go buy a list and do that myself. Or are you somebody that's worked in this industry for decades and have developed relationships with the active private equity and corporate strategics in the space and have developed relationships that they're phone calls away. You're going to make a single phone call and get access to these relationships that are inaccessible, inaccessible for me. It would take me a lot of time to go reach out as a CEO of my company and talk to these. And I might know some of these strategics. They might have reached out to me directly in the past. Uh, but to be able to, to have those conversations. And if I was going the direct route and I'm confident in doing that, absolutely. But if it's not, you know, we're scaling business, I don't really have time to even think about mm. trying to manage the sale process. I'm going to work with this bank, but I want to assess them on their ability to do that. How well can they connect with the right people that are going to be the right potential buyer for my business? How many of those relationships do they already have established? Uh, and then the reputation. Because even though they might have them established, they might have a reputation for just being you know, the stereotype of a banker, a self-serving psychopath. And, uh, <laughs> you know, there might be an opportunity to work with a banker that has a far better reputation and people perceive him in the market as, hey, he's an honest guy that I would take a phone call from anytime he calls. And not that guy, I want to avoid him. So there, there's those considerations that sometimes are, they're not right there. They're, everybody makes a pretty pitch deck and they come in with their game face on to do a song and dance to uh, review their their pitch to you, uh, and then present the value. But you can't base it just off of that. Uh, I think if you can dig in with some of those tough questions to really get that information that's uh, under the rug, that's buried in there on how this person acts, uh, get a, a better feel of what that culture is look like. You know how, how much resources are you going to have allocated to this deal and of those resources how spread out are they because most times everybody's using shared resources sometimes they're shared between different groups in the bank and that's where i would lend to another point size matters like do you you want to make sure you're working with the right bank you know you don't want to go to your 100 million dollar company go to goldman sachs because it's going to be on the bottom of their list they're going to put the most junior shitty you know whatever people working on that on that deal uh and it's not going to be a priority and it may not lead to that that same level of success whereas you go to the right size bank in the mid-market and then they treat it with a high level of um of focus and really pay attention have the details prioritize it they're definitely going to get better results and then if you do the opposite you put 
a deal that's too large for a bank that's typically used to very small deals, the $100 million deals to a bank that typically sells five $20 million deals, and they might not have the right um, capacity in terms of how they handle it. Because when you're doing a larger deal, the diligence process becomes a lot larger, a lot more complex. You know, if it's a small little shop and there's two people on the deal, you know, you're doing a large deal with an intense diligence process, that's not enough resources to manage it. You know, you're going to end up not being able to handle things well. And that company, the client, the, your business, you're going to end up spending a lot more of your internal resources at this sale process and wondering what the hell are you paying the bankers for? So I, I think making sure you also get a size fit and understand what resources they're going to put into it, as well as what are the relationships actually like with these buyers? Like, can you call some of those people right now and see if you can get them on the phone? <laughs> I want to know who's going to take a, a first call uh, answer from you. That's who I want to know. So th those are the key things. And then if you go to that proprietary route, you got to hit the streets. You got to get out there and get a sense of who the potential buyers would be for your business. And you should probably know within your own vertical who might be the larger strategics. Um, then beyond that, you got to think out of the box because there may be companies that aren't in the space currently, but are actively or put, could potentially actively looking to get into the space. So can you build out a market map to look at the obvious acquires and then think broadly about the adjacent industries where there may be some players that could potentially be acquires. Uh, then you can list out private equity firms and there's thousands of them. So under, get a, a research and find out who uh, is active in your space. And then I, I think there's great resources where you don't have to spend big bucks on consulting firms. You don't have to spend big bucks on proprietary databases. You can go onto Upwork and find a nice friendly contractor on a reasonable hourly rate that has access to all these databases and tools and say, hey, I'm trying to build a buyer's list for my company. This is what it is, blah, blah, blah. And you could probably find a, a junior banker or somebody that'll do it on the side with experience and access to those databases for far, far less, you know, a few hundred bucks. <laughs> Uh, and, and get you going there. Um, you know, so then and people like it. I think buyers at the end of the day are happier to deal directly with the seller. You know, we, we sort of distrust the bankers in our industry because that's their job is to make it competitive and get the price up. And uh, at the end of the day, everybody's like, well, do we really, do they, you know, we paid $40 million in fees. I don't know if those bankers really earned it or not. You know, that's always the... <laughs> A question on top of mind almost every deal I've worked on. Definitely. Um, you know, even the ones I banged. So, <laughs> but, uh, so, you know, I, I, I think um, those are the key areas. Uh, you know, you, we want to get the, the data, find the targets, uh, have those conversations. You know, like I said, especially corporate development, large companies, it's usually a group called corporate development. Uh, and that's their job is to focus on inorganic growth, which is oftentimes acquisitions. And that's their job is to keep tabs on potential acquisition targets. So anybody in corporate development should be happy to grab that conversation. Uh, and they should. And if they're not doing their job, then I would reach out to the CEO of that organization and tell them your corp dev folks aren't doing their job and uh, ask him if he's willing to pick it up, you know, and entertain a conversation about how your businesses could work together. Um, I, I think the private equity side, similar. You know, they're, they're looking for opportunities. They're even... Um, they're, that's their job. They're managing a fund with a defined or a declared strategy. And their, their job is to act on it and 
manage the capital allocation to deliver the highest return to the investors. So they should be taking calls with you too. If they don't, I would remind them that this is your job is to deliver the best returns for your fund. And you should have a conversation, understand the opportunity that there is with our business. Um, so I, I would have those conversations and I, I think prepare a little bit of information because there's some things that people will ask for. They are going to want to get a sense of what your financial performance is. I get it that you give me a number verbally, but if you can give me a nice, even a clean sort of synthesis of a PNL, um, and it all depends on your level of comfortability. You can give some high level numbers, um, or you can sort of show more numbers. I think part of it may depend on the industry you're at, but more importantly is your comfortability. If you're going to a direct competitor, you may be a little more reserved uh, versus somebody that's an unrelated business. Mm-hmm. So I, I think understanding where you are ahead of time and preparing a little bit of information, um, n- nothing too formal. I, I think you want to keep the same framing in nature that, hey, you know, I'm kind of hitting this point. I got this other opportunity. You know, I'm getting close to retirement. Um, I'm, I'm looking for the next akin. I'm looking for a better home for my business. You know, if you can still keep that tone, because the, the best thing for a buyer is a proprietary deal, knowing that I don't have to compete with a bunch of people. I invest a lot of time, energy, money into a deal and potentially lose it. That's not fun. That's why I don't like these highly competitive processes. And then that very cliche, but also true saying, if you win the auction, did you really win? Probably not. You're the biggest loser. Um, So that's, uh, you know, that's where buyers like those proprietary deals. And a lot of, in certain stances, if you know that, that you're in the space and there's going to be three key potential buyers, um, you know, makes, may make more sense to just go to them directly. And I would add this too. I, I personally think one of the best levers in negotiation and it really varies on how you use it, but it's time that through this, if I can spend the time to nurture that relationship, it's going to allow me to really get more eye to eye, uh, come to better terms. And even along the way, find ways to create a better process. You know, if I can nurture that relationship and know I, I met with Donald, maybe we just, we got an idea and we started doing a little partnership together and did something like that and got a good sense of what a working relationship would be like between our respective companies and then eased into more of a formal sale. I, I, I think those that lever of taking the time to build a relationship goes a long ways because you, you, don't, you don't end up with a lot of regrets. You know, if we did a partnership and it didn't work out, it's like, all right. <laughs> or we met a few more times and I found out you got some extremely different views that I'm not comfortable with. And then we can just end things and move on. Not a big deal. But when you're at this sort of uh, speed dating with the stopwatch, you know, you're, you may not choose the best lifetime partner there uh, under those circumstances with all this sort of time pressure around you. So in, in that view, as a buyer, I definitely value proprietary deals in that ability to have flexibility in the time frame, really do proper diligence, um, make sure there's a, a good fit and a good long-term marriage to be out of this. And I, I think for that seller, that reverse in some ways is the same where 
if you had that timeline and say, Hey, I'm, I'm going to look to sell in the next two years. Well, you can spend your time and start courting potential buyers uh, far earlier and even tell them that saying, Hey, I'm not ready to sell now, but I know it's coming. And I just want to make a quick introduction and do some periodic check-ins. What, what do you see in the market? What's going on? Where, where do you think values are at? Um, you know, I'm sitting and just do little check-ins and they should be happy to give you an update on those, those knowing that there's an opportunity to, to do a transaction down the road. Um, and Kisan, speaking of that, so if I'm a seller, I mean, is it more advantageous for me to do an auction process versus going direct with a single buyer? What would be your thoughts on that? It really depends on the situation. If you're in like, I got to get the hell out of here. I need to get out some distress circumstance, <laughs> whatever it is, <laughs> there's some things going down and there's urgency to sell. I would do an auction process. I'd work with an investment bank. I do, as I described earlier, find the best bank, find the best fit, be aggressive, just interview a bunch of them until you know you got a 10 out of 10 and then hire the best possible banker and do that. Run an auction process, get the deal done. If you're somebody that's got a time frame. I'd play on the time horizon. I would be very strategic about it. That's a situation I'm in. I got strategic acquires around me that inquire, uh, and they're smart about it. They're the corporate functions that keep a relationship, check in once a year. I stay in Todd. No, there's nothing now. I still got a long career ahead of me, but, and I'm, I'm here not to make a small scratch in our industry. I want to put a big freaking dent there. And I know it's going to take me another 10 years to do it, but I, I still check in, have the conversations, the little industry gossip. Um, but even then, if I was on a shorter time frame, let's say, and I said, I want to sell my business in the next two, three years, I, I would be a little more aggressive about that. I would make sure I'm talking to all the key corporate developments. I would start thinking about the adjacent industries and the corporate development practitioners there. I should be connecting with even some of the CEOs. Cause I don't mind shit talking to those CEOs. It's, it gets fun. You learn from them, right? Hey, what's it like running a public company CEO or a public company spot? Uh, so, and then the, I, the PE firms are there. I, I think that, I think you can even join the little circuits, you know, when there's a bunch of PE firms and bankers out socializing, trying to exchange deals, you get in there, they'd be excited to, to have somebody that owns and operates a business. That's a potential opportunity. Um, I, I would socialize that for even if I could take the time a year because there's so much value there, but there's, you know, it's not so much cutting the banker fees out because I, I think that's, it's a unique variable. It's so debatable where you do create an auction process. The price is inevitably going to be higher because of that. The, you know, the emotions do fuel that and it, it, it tends to get that competitive. Um, but when you do things with this longer consideration timeline, you just make better decisions. Like if anything I've learned in life is you make an impulsive decision, you know, versus taking your time and putting well thought out consideration, you make much 10 X better decisions when all the time's on your side versus it's compressed and you're trying to do it impulsively. So I, that's where it's like, Oh, did you know, look back? Oh, did I sell it? When, and when this were oftentimes we hear about these businesses that sell and afterwards the founder looks back six months and is like, what the hell did I do? Cause he watched his company get destroyed. He didn't sell to the right buyer. It was the wrong person. They didn't know what the hell they were doing. They didn't have the right strategy or right ability to execute. And they end up destroying the company completely. And we've seen that happen. We've seen that happen with some great technology products out there that we all loved and got acquired and things fell apart. Management team leaves. Uh, the innovation stops. They were on a tear of creating new pop product after a new hot product. And now that, that that's not happening anymore. That mission statement of the 
uh, you know, automated future isn't crystallizing or, or, or going anywhere. Um, and that happens and that's sad. And that, you know, you look at that and you look at your checkbook to know how much money you got and hopefully you can still smile at it, but sometimes not because those are your peers and those are the group that you grew with to build that organization and created the value. And, you know, did you, did they win? You know, who was everybody a winner or was it just you? I don't want to go back and have that on my mind that I sold the wrong person and watch all this value that was hard earned to create, to create all get destroyed. Like I, I, and that's where having that time on your side and making sure your business is going to be in a spot, it's going to be growing in a better direction. It's at a better place. There's somebody that's going to be a better owner, um, but they're going to do the right thing. They're going to keep growing it. They're going to help the people have greater opportunities, uh, or they're going to try to squeeze everything they can and really compress <laughs> headcount reduction, cost synergies, and really cut everything they can just to maximize the bottom line, package it up again, and sell it in six months. You know, yeah. those are- Yeah, it's almost like you're reading my mind. Are you, are you able to talk about that in, in depth, like some of the deals you've seen where things just did fall apart after an acquisition? Is that something you can touch on about any particular Yeah, deals? I remember one deal was crazy as hell. I did this deal and it was a, it was a public deal. And let's so I'm gonna try to not put too much details on there. It's this very tiny, tiny public company. So this is like a pink sheet traded uh, company that was basically on its way out, on its way out. Um, and I'm going through and it, we're trying to sell this thing. And basically we're trying to sell this uh, bank for the value of its charters. Because if you file a new de novo bank, it's, you had to have about $10 million to do this in Illinois. And this was um, public and I, I'm, I'm trying, I believe it had like a federal charter or something unique about this bank. And back then there was very few of these federal charters and they were like gold because you can just bank across the country. And, um, we're doing this deal and this thing was worth a number, but it was just losing so much money and it was all terrible management, just terrible management. <laughs> I can't even explain. Uh, and the CEO is just still like taking a half a million dollar salary. <laughs> like he's doing the company a favor. And it's just, that's one of the biggest reasons it's losing money. It's just, Hey, if you weren't doing that, this thing wouldn't really be in such bad shape. It is that it's, it needs to get sold. Um, and I, I remember, there was a reason that I worked on a deal. It didn't get done. It didn't get done for one reason or another. It was some, the share of the board turned it down. Offer was too low. I think it was like a $3 million, $4 million. It was somewhere in that $3, 4000000 million range. And out of the blue, a, um, a, a large, huge public company uh, bought this little business for $16 million, like way, way higher price, higher multiples. It didn't make any sense. We're just like, why, why? It doesn't make any sense. Um, Cause like even the charter is like worth something, but not that much. This is a dumb. And it was only two or three months later that company announced it was completely going bankrupt. So uh, yeah, I mean, and then they closed. You know, businesses ceased, gone, end of story. Wow. Um, yeah, he's like the, the owner made out good at the end of the day. Cause I, I mean, he was a bad operator. 
he shouldn't have been there to begin with. Uh, but you you know he got paid out well with with his um, shares and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I, I uh, there's crazy stuff on all these deals. Hey, that's my on my podcast. My signature question is, what's the craziest thing you've seen in M and A? And that's always it's always some story. It's always something. Every deal's got it, it's uh, good and bad to it. What what percentage would you what percentage of M and A deals done do you think are quote unquote successful as far as numbers, people wise, and everything in the whole package? You know, what's debatable is a definition of successful. But simply stated, if I'm buying a company with a valuation model on the my perceived um, value or forecast of value I'm going to obtain on this deal, that that's what I'm purchasing it on. And when they say there's a 70 to 80% failure rate against that, that I'm actually for. Uh, you know, whether it's just the definition or pass or fail, that's where, you know, it's not fail and this company blew up and died. No, it's just, if anything, it takes you longer to get that value. If I bought this company for a million dollars and I said, hey, in three years, we're going to, this thing's going to be worth $2 million. And three years later, the thing is still worth a million dollars. All right. I mean, it wasn't like a fail in the sense that we lost all our money. Um, it was a fail in the sense that we didn't hit our goal of doubling it to $2 million. Like it's by definition, that's our rationale for purchasing the company. You know, we got to have some rationale, right? We're not just buying the company for nothing. Now in today's world, it's not, you're not buying it for the money. You're buying it for some synergy that you have some plan of action to create value. You're either going to reduce expenses, be more efficient, find ways to do that and reduce costs that drives more profit to the bottom line. That's the, the easy thing to do. Um, or you're looking to increase the revenues of your business. So there's synergy on revenues that, Hey, maybe we got a distribution network and we can add this product and our sales rep can sell it and increase revenue that way. Um, that's good. And then there may be some other areas where we had an idea to build this product. Why don't we buy it? It's like getting that product out to market faster. We'll, we'll sell it and generate some revenue. Okay, uh, excellent. Cool. All right, Kassan, so why don't now, before I let you go, why don't we jump into a lightning round? Sure, let's do it. All right, yeah, you've given us a wealth of information on M&A, so I want to hear what makes you tick now. So, um... What is one book that has greatly influenced your life? I still like Just Listen. That's the one where if I have an opportunity to be a mentor or advisor to, especially these young kids that are just coming out of undergrad, that's the first book I always recommend is Just Listen. And it's written by a PhD psychologist, Mark Goldston. Um, it's uh, it's uh, all about empathy. But it's the one book where early in my career, I was struggling with leadership. I got to the point where I had five people in the company and I was struggling with leadership. And I started reading leadership books and wasn't getting the, the value that I wanted or, or the, the direction it wasn't helping. I, I stumbled upon these organizational psychology books. But this Just Listen was a really good one. It was one of the first ones I read and it, it helped me understand how to connect with people and really focusing on them, focusing on their perspective, how they see things, 
and being able to connect people based off of that, letting them, identifying with them that you understand them and where they're coming from. Uh, and that it just, it builds these stronger relationships. Uh, it builds better alignment. You know, I'm, I'm not talking at you now. I'm talking with you. And it allows you to work so much better together. That, that, book I, I like a lot because it's the same thing I still talk I'm doing a talk next week uh, and, and I'm, I'm fortunate to get a good friend I get to do a nice fireside chat with and this is one of the key themes in that talk is around going through M&A and it being one of the largest magnitudes of change management an organization could possibly go through <laughs> ultimately this is your best approach in helping with that people are going through a significant amount of fear uncertainty doubt on their future. And so you're there to answer the question, which is never soon enough. Um, how, how do you connect and help with them to drive them in the direction where they actually want to contribute to that change instead of fearing it? And that's where you got to connect with them to understand where they're coming from. That I, I get it. Like you're worried about if you're going to have a job in six months or not. Mm. Well, Let's talk about our strategy. You know, most of the synergy opportunities on the cost side we see are combining backend functions. And because you're in sales, that doesn't affect you at all. So I wouldn't even be worried about it. Or even if the bad news is you, that's fine. Let's have the tough conversation and said, hey, you know what? There is a chance that your role might get eliminated because we're planning to combine the backend functions and you're in one of them. But I want you to know if that happens, we're going to be here for you 100% of the way. We're going to have a program for you so that you're going to not have to worry about money. You know, we're going to make sure there's a severance and you and your family are taken care of. And we're going to help you make a transition to a new role. We know you're good. We know you're capable. And we're going to put a good reference in and help you get a transition to that next role so you're fully supported and set up for success. Right now I've, I've alleviated that, that top fear, but Hey, for us to make this successful, this is what we need to achieve. We have to work together and we need to take the process in your company and the process in our company and combine them and really have help it shape together so that it's set up for a better future. All right. Excellent. That, I'm, gonna to, I'm gonna have to look for that book. Just listen. Right, yeah. That's a, I like that one a lot. Uh, there's a bunch of books. There's so many. I love, yeah, I've been reading a lot of sales books. Uh, Never Split the Difference is a really popular one. Almost every salesperson I talk to has read that about. Yeah, that's one of my favorite as well. Yeah. There's a lot of components that you'll read from Just Listener there. It's just they, they expand on it and give you a lot of these examples for workplace, personal life. Uh, Mark did a good job in that book. He starts, I love how he starts a book with his hostage negotiation scene. Yeah. And he walks through the, the way the brain works and, and functions. Yeah, that was an excellent act. Okay, and now this is one of my favorite ones. How has a failure or perceived failure actually allowed you a greater success later? Uh, they, they all do. <laughs> um, you know, I just, it's a lesson learned. It's how you mature. I, I think you should be failing proactively. Like you go work out the gym and you sort of get a good workout and you know, you got a vigorous workout and you feel good about it. You're going to get stronger. That's the same thing with, with failures. Like you, you should be taking on these failures going out and proactively failing at stuff. 
it's it's like a muscle to develop to be able to go through it and you get stronger from it right you go through it you learn something you get stronger now the key th- the key is is you want to fail you want to fail you can fail soft you can fail hard but most importantly is fail cheap don't lose a lot of money when you fail and if you can be mindful of that and take these risks where you can take the failure uh, you know and you can take the physical pain or mental emotional pain um, but you don't want it to hurt your pocketbook because that's not good because then it puts you in the surrounding you know issues and stuff so that's the key fail as much as you can fail soft fail hard uh, but just fail cheap okay and if you can have a billboard anywhere with anything on it what would it say uh, life's all about lost opportunities okay very good and expand a little bit on that. What do you mean by that? Yeah, it's probably about the best one to put for somebody to get it right away. Uh, uh, it basically means, uh, you know, it's, it's just a funny phrase that I overheard uh, somebody tell me uh, and it, or somebody say out loud to another person. And it's just stuck with me. It's just life is all about lost opportunities. And it's just something that really stuck in my head and pivoted my thinking that walking down the street every person i walk by is an opportunity i can stop them i can say hello i can whatever smile anything and you, you get a reaction it's an opportunity because you connect with them um and, and that's always missed like all the time everything's there everything is an opportunity you get an idea and you act on it it's all missed it's all missed you're doing nothing you're in a passive state all the opportunities are missed Unless you're in a proactive state and acting on opportunities, you can like fishing, maybe get one of them, but there's just so many things that you can't get everything. So you need to prioritize. And what are those opportunities that align with your goals that you want to be pursuing and going after knowing that there's just, you can't get everything. There's just life. It's all about lost opportunities. Everywhere you look, (laughs) everything is a lost opportunity. Wow, that's one of the best I've heard. See, I mean, that was almost a missed opportunity because I didn't make you expand on that one. But yeah, that's a great one. Thank you. All right. Um, all right. So in the last few years, what new behavior, belief, or habit has most changed your life? Oh, when a habit that's changed my life. You know, reading was one. Um, the last couple of years, I... I think, hmm, I'm still, I, I think the voice lessons were good. Podcasting, you know, I, I started podcasting about five years ago and you want to get better at it. You push yourself. I used to mumble. That's for the funny part. I used to mumble all the time. And I, I think it helped a lot around that. Um, yeah, your voice is great, by the way. So yeah, that's paid off. Yeah, but it's, it's more than that. I, you know, I, what I I think with this, I I would say, honestly, Donald, let me change direction on this. I think teaching has been the one thing I have three kids. My oldest is my daughter at 11. And I can remember when she was seven years old, I read the book, Ray Dalio principles to her. Now, this wow. is obviously way over her head, but I like that it led to some interesting conversations. 
where we talked about how the brain works. Hey, look, people are uniquely different looking, but your brain is kind of the same. We all uniquely think different. And getting into some conversations about that around how people act, how you get along with people because of certain traits. Um, and then you start talking about broader things like open, closed-minded people versus closed-minded people. You talk about goals and how do you think to achieve those goals, some of the things around empathy. And it, I, I got to a point where I, I wanted to solidify my principles, which is discipline, learning pattern, empathy. And um, I said, you know what? Dad doesn't know all this stuff. Why don't we make a point to go interview people? So we went and I, I, I asked a favor from a friend I knew would have a high profile to kick off as a pilot interview. And she interviewed the CEO of Morningstar about leadership. And it was, she was nine years old at the time. So it was a, a cute little interview. We published it, but today we led and started it as a personal podcast series um, where the idea is interviewing influencers about their top three principles that led to their success and doing a, a workshop where we break it down into some practical how-tos so kids can get ideas on how they can apply that into their daily practice to make it their principle. Um, that, that's been fun because it's, it's just teaching. I, I think teaching is such a powerful thing. If you can get the opportunity to do it, to practice it, it's this rigor, this rigor, we're doing it right now. We're having this conversation. I'm trying to share as much as I can that would benefit others, but being able to teach it, it's a good thing to do, but it, for you, it helps a lot. You will get better at communicating. You develop better skills. You think more about what you're doing in this world, uh, it makes you a better person. And what you teach, you'll ingrain more. You'll be able to act on it, internalize it. Uh, I I think that's the the best thing that that's been a thing I've done in the in the past year. It's significantly different. Okay, and last one. This probably is the um, deepest one. So, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? Um, the important truth that few people agree on with me on. I, I, you know, I, I almost feel like it's the brevity of things that, uh, I, I, I can tell I've done it several times throughout this conversation where I've added words I didn't need to add. I could have been more concise in the things I explained. When we write, we communicate, we talk, we tend to overcomplicate things just by human nature. We tend to expand on things too much. We tend to write things. Now there's clarity in explaining the things and getting your point across but minimizing the distraction, the filler words, and being able to address in as few words as possible. So you want to ask somebody to help you with something, but you want the you want to still put in the why, right? You know, elaborating on it to the point that there's a rationale, a reason why we should do this. But can you do that with as few words as possible? Can you write your business communication with just two clear sentences. One, state the thing. Two, state what you're asking for. Hey, I, I noticed you're, you know, 
heavily involved in this healthcare industry doing M and A. Um, what's the ask? Can we grab a quick call and compare some notes next week? I just, I don't know. That that's the thing. I think we professionally is the skill of its own to push on. How can you minimize? a lot of this communication that we have. How can you shorten all of it? Just as much as you can, as few words as possible. <laughs> yeah, keep it simple, right? All right, excellent stuff there, Kassan. So before we jump off, if um, if somebody needs to get in touch with you, wants to follow up, um, what's the best way for them to reach you? Sure. Um, well, one, if they're looking just to learn M&A, we have over 350 published pieces of blogs, eBooks, and two published books on mascience.com. So all things, if just for learning M&A, mascience.com. I know people find that helpful. I'm on LinkedIn. It's just Kison, K-I-S-O-N, Patel. And I, I usually um, am there. And uh, I don't find a lot of fun to connect with folks on, on other practitioners on LinkedIn. Okay, and... um. How can they find your um, podcast as well? It's M ampersand A, M&A Science on everything. Uh, Spotify, iTunes. I don't know if people still use Google Podcasts, but yeah. Okay, excellent. Yeah, I have to add that to my list as well. Yeah, right. we have some good ones. There's definitely, we've been had a good run. So I uh, highly recommend checking out the last uh, few interviews we published. All right, for sure, for sure. All right, so Kassan, again, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. I mean, we learned a wealth of information from you and look forward to having you back again soon. Hey, thanks, Donald. Enjoy the conversation. All right, likewise. Have a good weekend. Talk to you soon. You too. All right, take care. Bye. There you have it, guys. Another episode of Dealmaker Diaries in the Books. If you enjoy and or find value in what we're doing, please do leave us a nice review. It goes a long way in keeping the show moving in the right direction. For you investors, if you're looking for places to put your hard-earned capital to work, head on over to our website, g1cgrp.com, and sign up for our investor list to be informed of the different projects we're raising capital for that will provide you with the cash flow your investments so much deserves. <laughs>